name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, <clears throat> when we were uh, this week, Becky texted me. She would be leading worship, worship, so she knew what the text was about uh, this morning. And she said that she had a, a testimony to share that relates to the, to one of these probably pretty familiar stories to you and Mark. And uh, I was like, great, let's go, let's do it. So Becky, come on up and tell us tell us your story. <clears throat> This story happened about nine or ten years ago, but it's still, I just felt like God was saying to share it today, and so I usually try to do what God asks. I think that that's a good good advice. Um, a few years back when my sister-in-law, Nikki Swan, who a lot of you guys know, and I were both being stirred up in our faith around the same time, we were both young mothers and her desperate need for Jesus was more visible in the early stages of motherhood. She told me that she felt like God was wanting her to give up drinking coffee for a season. My first response was, I don't think God operates like that. It was based on my solid religious rules and upbringing that I'd made up. Um, Little did I know, God does call us to shed the things that get in the way of us noticing him, to fast from things. He does call us for little acts of obedience out of mercy because when the big ask of, asks of obedience come, we are ready. He teaches us to do what we've been created to do slowly with baby steps because you don't teach a baby right off the bat how to be a lawyer or a doctor. You just simply start with the basics, crawling, eating, sleeping. After she told me this, I became a little worried to ask or pray what God could be asking me to lay down. That worry now is just a reflection of my heart, an indicator that there are things I do need to lay down, a light in a place of darkness in my heart where I'm not trusting God, where I'm not trusting that his ways are better and that when I trade it in, it's, not, it's something that's not good for me and he, what he gives me back is so much better. It sometimes is simply like a TV show, like a reality show I've been hooked on or something because I want to veg out at night, but really it's causing me anxiety and taking my mind away from good things. He was starting to teach me that simple acts of obedience matter, just like simply good choices in food when eating matter. Putting things into my body and entertaining certain thoughts and input matter. And making a bad choice one day, but submitting it to God the next and asking him for help to obey matters. And it matters big time to God because he loves me and he only wants what's best for me. Just like I praise my children for making a good choice once, I don't care about all the bad habits that they've had and all the times that they didn't listen. But when I see them choose to actively decide to choose good, I praise them and rejoice in good with them. So I did it. I gave up a TV show. I decided to choose God's way one little time. I went all in with God, an outward decision that God's ways are better than mine. And even though I didn't see it at the time, I knew he had more and better things for me and that he could be trusted. So I gave it up. So here's one thing about God. His ways are not our ways, and his timing is not like our timing. 
I'm always surprised when he does things slowly, and I'm always surprised when he does things really fast. That time he was like, now that I have your attention, great. I want you to give up buying clothes for a whole year. Admittedly, this one was a little bit harder. I would not have guessed that it would have been, but it was. That's the thing about idols. They creep in slowly, and then before you know it, you're a slave to them, and you find yourself thinking that you need them. In reading my Bible during this time, verse after verse, the theme of garments kept popping up in every verse that I read. He even mercifully gave me a whole week to decide if I wanted to do this. How nice, my heavenly father, the king of the universe, to give me a whole week to decide if I wanted to obey. But that's the thing, he's very, very kind. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? He desired for me to repent, to lay down these things that I had put before him. I didn't know it at the time. Perhaps he desired my obedience first, but laying things down for the sake of Christ has so much beauty on the other side. Oh, the wonderful things that opened up and followed afterwards. First of all, I have never received more clothing in my whole life. People were bringing over bags of clothing and giving me things all the time. And then my time multiplied. I had been wasting hours shopping, and now I had time to open my mornings while the kids were at school to what God had might have for me that day, like Holy Spirit appointments, and there it was, the overflow of God's redemptive work in his world. And, it's, and as I stood there in the splash zone of the clothing that I did not buy that year, God was teaching me to hear his voice and hear that he was indeed good and he could be trusted. Then the bleeding started. I started bleeding so much after my monthly cycle that it just kept going. I finally went to the doctor and was diagnosed with PCOS, something that usually happens earlier in life and could keep you from conceiving children. But I had already had two kids, and we saw that strand of pearls string of cysts around my ovary in the ultrasound, which is an indicator of this. The doctor said that it was weird that it showed up in this time of my life, but I had it. And I felt so angry that this might be something I would have to deal with for a long time. I got home and I cry-called my sister-in-law, Nikki. She threw out in the conversation, hey, I wonder if this is what that woman in the Bible had. After hanging up the phone, I quickly went to my Bible and found the story of the woman who had been bleeding and asked Jesus to heal her. And lo and behold, the way the woman was healed was by touching the hem of his garment. There it was. He drew The word he drew my attention to earlier, the mess I had made, was leading to the healing that he offers. God's love turning things for our good. God loves turning things for our good. So I prayed. I prayed with my husband, Jeremiah. After sharing with him what God had shown me, I asked out loud, how do I touch the hem of your garment? If you're not physically here, how can I be healed? I am pouring out. I am bleeding through. I know that you are the only one who can stop this. The verse in Mark says she knew in her body that she was healed. 
The next day, I went in for blood work, and I got the call later. The nurse said that they received the results, and it's not showing up that you have PCOS. What was there wasn't there anymore. I called Jeremiah, and we thank God for this healing. And shortly after that, the bleeding stopped. This is the weird part. Jeremiah went out on the front porch, and then I heard him yell, Becky, you have to see this. In the top of our neighbor's house, like on the roof, that's a, the house in front of us, sat like one of those ducks that looks like a turkey. That They're called Muscovy ducks, but I'll forever call it a turkey duck, and Jeremiah pointed it out. And I knew it was something, and it just sat there. It sat there all night, and it was gone in the morning. That weird duck marked something. Creation did something in response to the creator doing something. It was weird, and it was great, and it was mine. I have no idea and also absolute clarity of what I'm saying here. And so it goes with holy moments. That Those things that God writes on your heart, it's hard to translate them to paper. I try, I try to speak the heart language out loud, but sometimes it just ends up being about faith. That thing in that woman in the crowd that made her grab the hem of his garment, that thing in her that knew that he was some, someone and that this was something, that thing that happened and that, and that something would happen and that, no, that something had happened, that something would happen and something was happening. She happened upon both the mystery and the logic of faith and she knew it was something that she didn't do, but something that she had to do all at once. The Holy Spirit was the fuel behind all of this faith. It was never about my clothes. It was never about my garments or her garments or even Jesus' garments. It's always about letting go and reaching out and getting more of Jesus by grace through faith. After this healing happened, it led me to desire to pray for others pray into scriptures, and claim them over people's lives, to ask God most of all to increase my faith and to increase others' faith, whether that is through physical healing or not, because physical healing doesn't always happen this side of heaven, and I'm sure even hearing this story sparks pain in hearts that have been asking and asking for a long time and haven't received the healing that you long for and even now close to 10 years later there have been other stories in my body and ones that led to God not healing in that way and there are prayers in my life and for people that I love that I haven't seen go this way and yet to be healed and they're yet to be answered but the increase of my faith here is boundless it's about being in relationship with Jesus and his promise to be with us in whatever and guide us through. This story is not a formula for healing. He wants us to come to him and trust him. That he will be faithful and that his love never fails. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And I learned his name as my healer in that season. So in this season of Lent, of fasting, of giving up things that the Holy Spirit lays on your hearts, let it lead you to Jesus. And reach your hand out in faith that he is all that we really need.
Thanks, Becky. I'm going to read now the the passage with that that story that Becky referenced. It's from Mark chapter five. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you're here speaking to us through your scripture. God, we thank you for the word of testimony to your power that's personal in Becky's story. And we thank you for this word that bears your own power and authority. And God, I pray that you would help us to listen to what's being said. God, help us to be people who see and understand and recognize what is before us. Father, help me by your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak with your word and not against it. Jesus, we're so glad to be able to hear you. Let us listen in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, <clears throat> you know, I... This, these two stories uh, that, that Mark tells are a couple of the, the most famous stories, I think, in, in the Gospels. And um, Mark, Mark does something here that we've seen him do already. He, ma he makes a sandwich for us. Um, 
And the, the bread is the two halves of the story of Jairus. And the, the middle, the meat, is the story of this woman with the issue of blood. And um, the, these stories are so beautiful. Jesus is uh, so much of, of what we love about Jesus is on display in these stories. He's so attentive and, and kind and gentle with the people that he's dealing with. And, um, but I also, I know just when you listen to Becky's story, when you read and hear these stories in Mark chapter five, for many people, there's a, there's an area, you know, of varying size, depending on the people, an area of sensitivity. And, uh, because there's, there's pain there for a lot of people and, I, I would, my advice, encouragement to you is when you are reading the scriptures, listening to the Bible, and you feel that where whatever, for whatever reason that you're reading and something uh, you instinctively want to push away from um, because it, it's touching on something, whenever you feel that, you should lean in rather than away. Because very often, the thing that is there provoking you, compelling you, and in some sense, making it feels like it drives you away from the text, that is actually the scriptures doing what they should and getting underneath the kind of surface level engagement that you might have with God and with the world. And there's a lot of that here in these two stories. If you're like me, I think, um, there's two people here, really, that our eyes drawn towards that are, in many ways, the complete opposites of one another. Uh, Jairus is a man. He's named in the story. He's powerful. Uh, he's a ruler of the synagogue. He has authority. He has social status, and then we have this woman who is unnamed, and uh, it's that fact is sort of representative of her status in the community, in society. Um, she's already at sort of a power imbalance just by virtue of being a woman, but she also has this issue uh, that has made her ritually unclean in the nation of Israel in her town for 12 years, for a long time. And you couldn't in many ways find two different, more different people, but there is something essentially similar about them in this sequence of stories and that they are just, they're desperate. They, they have, they're out without recourse. There, there's no charted way forward for them. Jairus has all of these things, these trappings of power and status. And in the face of losing his daughter, they just, they don't mean very much. And so he is a representative of, of often a, a 
collection of powers that has already opposed Jesus in a number of places. If you go back and look at the Gospels, it's often at synagogues that Jesus is opposed. He says, I don't care. This one, maybe this one, can help me. This is the, the hour of crisis, the hour of deepest need. And Jesus just goes with him. He just says, take me to her. You know, a lot of stories in the Gospels where Jesus will push and pull with somebody. What do you really want? What are you, what are you saying? Do you want me to heal you? And here Jesus just goes, just lets go. And then he's interrupted. You know, he's, he's pressed in and this woman is driven by this same kind of desperation because there's no option for her. There's nothing for her. You can sense her own desperate search for an answer. The text is telling you she spent everything she's had, suffered under the, the hand of the physicians to try to relieve her of this issue of bleeding. And she's not better She's worse. She's getting worse. And so there's nothing left for her. And all that she can do is go see Jesus. And it drives her to break the rules. The rules are that because she's bleeding, she is ritually unclean. And if she touches other people, they become unclean. And she is here in the middle of the town, elbowing her way closer through the crowd, just hoping to just touch just this little piece of Jesus' clothing. And she, the unclean person, touches this teacher of the law, breaking the law, and she's healed, just like she had hoped. And Jesus knows. He senses that he's been healed, he, and he says, who, who touched me? Which is weird. I mean, the text says it's weird. Um, N.T. Wright, the commentator, said, this is like being in the middle of a rugby match, because he's English, and somebody in the middle of the scrum saying, who touched me? Like, everybody touched you. What's, what's the question here? Um, and we don't know exactly, we don't know a lot about Jesus' internal experience. You know, um, we don't know if Jesus, what Jesus doesn't know, if he's just saying this to try to, to draw her out, but he really knows who it is. Or, you know, does Jesus not know? We believe he's fully God, but, you know, God doesn't get tired either, and Jesus gets tired. Um, so he's fully, fully human and fully God. Whatever the, the drive is, he says, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me differently. Who touched me? And this woman then has to be exposed. Now, everybody's eye is drawn to her. They know who she is. She's the woman that's been out of the community for all of this time. This desperate woman who's leveraged everything she had to try to be healed so she can be cleansed so she can be part of the, the community. And she is terrified 
says that she falls down trembling and afraid because she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. She knows that she's healed. She feels it in her body. But if this one could make her healed, could he now unheal her because of her breaking of the law? Will she be punished because of the breaking of the law? And Jesus is so kind to her when she does this. He, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And this particular term for daughter, it's the only time anywhere in the Gospels that he uses it. He, he embraces her. And he, he, he tells her, he says, she, he says, go in peace. He says, there's no reason to be afraid. In that moment, he gives her more than just her physical healing. He gives her more than the stopping of the bleeding. He gives her in front of everyone the knowledge in the whole community that she is, she's going to be clean. That now, every, just like everybody knew before that she was unclean, now everybody knows she's clean. And, and then is when the next tragedy hits, because it's like right in the midst of that chaos that the news comes that the little girl has died, that there's no point in going any further. And Jesus just brushes aside this news. He just says, no, no, no. Um, and he looks at the father at that moment who his world is just collapsed in on itself. And he looks at him and he says, don't be afraid. What he really says is keep believing. Keep believing. And then he does what Jesus does. He, he goes there and he gets rid of the professional mourners and the private mourners and everybody. He goes up to the room with the father and the mother and, and his closest friends. And Mark, you know, in this beautiful moment, make sure that you hear what Jesus says, not just in English, of course, not in Greek, but in Jesus' own tongue, hears these words, Talitha kumi. Just little girl, get up. And then she's awake. She's, she was dead. And then she's alive. And Jesus, as he's saying it, has his hands on her. Because he's once again unconcerned about the laws of, these ritual, of ritual cleanliness. You're not supposed to touch a dead body. It's against the rules. It makes you unclean. And Jesus is unafraid. He puts his hand on this dead little girl. And he says, wake up. And she does. And you read these stories and it's so moving. It's so, Jesus moves in these situations so kindly, attentive to so many of the questions that are 
just sort of native to the people who are suffering and the people who are, are watching. And if you read this story, I know that part of what presses in on you and moves you, if you're like me, is that you are familiar with stories and situations like this. You know what years and years of suffering look like. Some of you are intimately familiar with what it might mean to suffer for 12 years without answer and to feel like there's no end in sight. And some of you know what that phone call is, what that text message is, to know that cataclysmic tragedy has happened in a second. And your life is forever different from that moment. And the, the kind of haunting pivot point of this story, I, I think, is when Jesus looks at this woman who is just healed and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Because if, you've, if you know what it is to suffer for a long time, if you know what it means to get one of these phone calls or whatever, it becomes an immediate question for you. What is wrong with my faith? Why isn't Jesus being attentive to me like this? And it's easy to read this story and to say, I think the most reasonable explanation on its face is that your faith is not like theirs. That if it was, then things would be different. And I think that's a misreading of the nature of these people's faith. <clears throat> this woman does not have a really good understanding of who Jesus is. Because she doesn't really care to talk to Jesus or hope that he would do something for her. She has a very magical understanding. If I, I don't even need to talk to him. I don't need to deal with him. If I could just touch his clothes, then I could get what I want. And that way of thinking about God, I would say, if you were describing that that's the way you were describing to me, that that's the way that you view God, I would say, okay, pause. We need to talk about some things. That, that is not a healthy way. It's not a fully formed way. It's not a clear-eyed way of trusting and following Jesus. It sounds like you just want to use Jesus to get what you want. You don't even want to deal with him. You just want healing. So this woman is not an icon of, of perfect faith. Her, her faith, her understanding is imperfect. But notice how Jesus still responds to her. He still, he still does this for her in spite of her faith. In spite of her lack of faith. You know, if you look at Jairus, Jesus turns to him and he tells him, don't be afraid, keep believing. Why is he saying that to him? Probably because he's afraid 
and he's struggling to believe. This man is not this perfect icon of saintly, superhuman faith. He's, he's probably teetering on the edge, which is an experience you probably are familiar with. That probably does ring true to you. And so I don't think that what you're meant to understand is if I could just muster this thing, this feeling, this certainty, this, mm, then I would be healed. And, and, and it, on its face, if you just look at these words, your faith has made you well, it seems like that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But Mark is telling you a whole story. It's clearly not that this woman's faith itself alone that has made her well. It's not like if she would just sort of meditate on this feeling and like, reach faith and she healed herself. Like that, that could happen. But it, that's not what faith has done. That's not what her faith has been like. All her faith has done that has made her well is put her into contact with Jesus. That's it. It, it is not the superiority of her faith. It is not the kind and quality of her, her faith that has made her special. And it is not, therefore, your faith. Every person who is suffering in the church, it's not because Jesus is standing across some imaginary finishing line and saying, if you would just get one little bit closer to me, then I could do something. There have been far too many people in churches who have suffered under the weight of these questions, feeling like if they had just been able to something, I don't even know what, I don't know how, but if I could have just figured it out, then Jesus would have given me what I wanted. If it was that simple, it would almost be comforting. But it's not. You know, if you, if you read the New Testament, you read what happens after the New Testament, every one of Jesus' disciples suffer and die, usually well before their life has run into old age. If these people who saw these things with their eyeballs and saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, if these people didn't have the requisite faith, faith to avoid suffering and death, then what chance have we? And yet the pain of that question, why? What's wrong with my faith? Where... Where is the delay for me now? How many years do I have to suffer? How much loss do I have to have before this Jesus shows up for me? And there, you know, I can't, I can't answer all those questions. Nobody can, and the people who can, I, I would tell you not to trust them. I will tell you this. One of the things that this text invites you into and even demands of you is that you would behave like one of these people. 
that you would be driven by desperation like these people. That these people are actually real and true disciples, not because they're perfect in their faith or their certainty or whatever it is you want to imagine what this is, but because they are driven to Jesus, driven to him. They have no hope outside of him. And so they push in, they crowd in, they elbow their way through. They must be close to Jesus. They must. And that is what a disciple looks like. And in some sense, that's what faith really is. It is just, it is all that you have just just to say, I, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what is going to happen, but I know that I have to be close to Jesus. And this text does bring you into that life. You should see that as an invitation to come and trust Jesus and, and, and push in like that in a life of faith. And, and I would also say, if you, there, there is certainly in my life, because I have seen so many times when this is not the resolution, I, in my own life of prayer, easily adopt a default attitude that says, it doesn't even matter if I pray. It doesn't matter. God is going to do whatever God wants to do. What's the point of praying? I'm not even really bitter about it when, I, when I'm saying it a lot of times. I'm like, well, it's probably good for me to talk about these things with God, but ultimately it doesn't affect anything if I pray. And all, all I would say is that's not the way that Jesus talks about prayer. I don't know how the math works out. I don't know how to connect all the dots for you about if I don't think there's a, if you pray this many times or feel this many things, then something will happen. I don't think it works that way. But Jesus definitely talks about a life of prayer and petitioning and asking God as if it actually does matter, the praying. And that God does respond to his people. I, I absolutely believe that God is sovereign. He is providential. He is ruling over history. He will absolutely execute his plans in the way that he intends. I do believe that and all of this other stuff. And how those things interlock and interact, I do not know. This is the mystery of prayer. And, and a view of prayer that is like, it doesn't matter, or a view of prayer that's like, well, if I do enough things on the checkbox and I feel the right things, then I'll get what I want. These are entirely too formulaic with a God that is way too small. It's either, it's either a mechanical robot in the sky that you just got to figure out the right buttons for, or he's a God who's just so distant from you that he doesn't even really care, and he's not either one of those things in the scriptures. And so the, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know. But prayer looks like this the desperate petitioning of Jesus to come do something because he's the only one that can. And the, the only other thing that I can tell you that I, I feel absolutely convicted about is that Jesus heals. That the work of Jesus is the work of healing in the world. That, that God is the God who made all of creation. He has made it well. He has made it for life. He's made flourishing. And he will not just seed over and give away a world that he made. But instead, 
because of Jesus, he is doing something to reclaim, to redeem, and, and make better even the world that he himself made. So that when the kingdom is here, when the kingdom comes in power and in fullness, healing will be a sign that the kingdom is there. Healing is what Jesus does. And in the, the timeline on which that happens, I am definitely unclear about. I am not unclear that the coming of the kingdom means the coming of healing. When Jesus is fully king, reigning in power, there is no more weeping. There is no more dying. There is no more suffering. There is no more hopeless exclusion and isolation. There is no more heartbroken and desolate fathers. It's over. And what I'm absolutely convicted about is that Jesus takes so seriously his intention to decimate and desolate the powers of evil and sin that he doesn't just touch this woman's uncleanness or that little girl's uncleanness. He instead offers his own body for the uncleanness that is in the world. It is not just the issue of this woman's blood that concerns Jesus. Jesus will offer his own blood so that the healing of the world may be one. Jesus doesn't care just about the resurrection of this little girl. He cares about resurrection, period. He cares about the, the destruction of death. He, he cares about the robbing of the grave. And he puts himself in the grave to explode the power of the tomb once and for all. And so why is Jesus delaying for healing you? Why is Jesus not coming? Why did he not intervene before that thing happened that you got that call about? I don't know. I don't know. I've sat with so many people who've asked the same question that you have. You are not alone or unique in your experience. You are entirely human and normal. And Jesus cares about it. He is still this Jesus. He cares to deal gently and kindly with you. If you've been pushed away and pushed off into a corner, isolated by the pain of your suffering that nobody even sees because you're really good at pretending like you're fine, Jesus, he welcomes you if you barely even understand what he wants to do in your life. He is still this way. That it is the lost ones that, that appear beyond all hope, buried in their grave, that Jesus still loves. It is you who has a faith that disgusts you. You look at your, the state of your own faith, that you barely even trust Jesus. You don't even understand him that well. And he loves you. It is people like you that he puts in the story. It is people like you that he makes his friend. And he bears in his own body the scars of his suffering and death so that you would know forever that he intends to win your healing. He sees you. He loves you. I don't know why it takes so long. I don't know when. 
But I know that there is no hope except Jesus. And if you are here today and you have suffered in silence, you have suffered out in the open, if you have suffered with and for other people and your faith feels like it's on its last leg, push through the crowd of your doubt. Push through the fickle and the faulty nature of your faith and just just be in the room with Jesus. Respond with that faith that you have. And that draws him to you. He is compelled to come to you because he loves you and your weakness and your failure. And if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus because how can you? This is a crazy story. Look at the state of the world. Look at the state of your life. Look at the state of the people that you love. I would simply say this. It's Jesus or it's nothing. There is so much suffering in this world and there are no good answers. Either the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the most profoundly true and revolutionary thing in the history of humanity or there is no hope. The only option left available to you is the comfort of your own self-delusion as you face a world that is inconquerably filled with suffering and death. These are your options. And it is from desperation that you ought to run to Jesus. And if today that is being kind of unveiled, you are just desperate, you are out of options, you are right on the brink of discipleship. Be like this woman, be like this man, and press into Jesus. He is your only option. And he, this is the best news, he will absolutely come through for you. He will come through for you. It may be in the long run. It may be in ways that you do not expect. But he has put his own body on the cross as a promise and pledge to you that he will come through for you, finally and forever. Go run to Jesus. He is waiting for you. And he will put his hands on you. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word. We confess that we are people who do not understand, that we are people who are often confused. Some part of us at times wants to be a disciple, other times does not. We are afraid. We struggle to keep believing. We are people who don't have good ideas about you plenty of times. And God, we are so comforted that you love people like us. We want to hear what you're saying and respond like a disciple. We want to respond with faith. We just, we want to trust you. And God, I pray for people who are here, feeling the weight of their own suffering, feeling the, the shaky legs that they're standing on in faith. And God, I pray that you would comfort them, that you would move towards them. God, I pray that you'd heal them, you would restore them. 
And Father, I pray that they would have such a clear vision of you that even if your answer of healing is not in the timeline that they long for, they're desperate for, you would be able to comfort them even them, even then and say, still yet, trust me, I will bring you healing. And Father, I pray for those who are here today who have never trusted you, who've given up hope. God, I pray that you would rescue and redeem them, that they would be delivered over from a spirit of hopelessness, from a belief that the story of the world is going to only and always and forever be a story of death and suffering. And God, I pray that you would rescue them from that, from that lie, and that they would instead find themselves delivered over to the kingdom of the beloved son. Father, I pray that they would see that though doubt and sin binds them, you would come and deliver them and free them. We ask God for that miracle. And Father, we know that you can come through. Jesus, we love you. We love you not nearly enough. And we are so grateful that your love is constant, it's holy, it is good. You are our great healer. We thank you for that, Jesus. Amen. We're going to take a short...